Hello and welcome to Smoke and Burn. I'm Casey Gresseth, and joining me today is the sales manager for Georgia from Primico Inc., Caleb Tingle. How you doing, Caleb? Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing really well, um, and it's a pleasure to be talking to you tonight. Yeah, man. I'm glad to have you. Uh, you know, we've, we, we worked for different, uh, branches of the same tree. You know, I was in Primico, Michigan and, and you've been with Atlanta your, your whole career, but we did teach a, uh, a class together a few years ago at a, what was that a zone meeting or was it RepCon? It was RepCon if memory serves. That's right. Okay. Yeah. We talked a little bit about poor products, which is something, you know, I've never been good at, but I'm glad you were there. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was Power Five, which was kind of Wes's brainchild. Wes is our general manager, Wes Seaball, uh, his brainchild, and and I had a good time collaborating with you on that. It's always fun teaching those classes, but like the first one is always just the lead up to it is so nerve wracking. You're like, you know, you can't settle down, and then after the first one, you know, second and third are fine. It just seems like it's always that way for me. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And it's fun to, at RepCon specifically, meet people from around the globe and put faces to names. And uh, I, I enjoyed that experience. All the people you you drew red lines through on that BG Elite list. Yeah, I'm coming after you. <laughs> I'm glad my name's not on there anymore. So... <laughs> Uh, Caleb, I know you've been with BG for, for a while now, but, uh, can you kind of give me a rundown on your career? Sure, man. Yeah. October will be 10 years, uh, for me working, uh, for, for Primico in Georgia. Um, I grew up in Athens, Georgia. My father, uh, owned an independent garage that he started uh, when he was 20 years old and sold it about 41 years later. He sold it a couple years ago. And I worked for my dad growing up and, and through school, and uh, he was a customer at Primico's. And um, I knew a couple of the guys that, that put me up for the job, Joey Gamber and Ed Norman. Ed's a distributor up in Pennsylvania now. Um, and Primico had kind of gone through um, some tough times in South Georgia, uh, some guys that had abused the territory over the years. and. Um, and they were looking, Ed was not one of them. Ed, Ed (laughs) did all he could. Uh, you don't have to uh, protect him. No, no. Ed, Ed did all he could and (laughs) and worked really hard. They just needed somebody to be there every day was what was missing. Um, so Primico was looking for somebody. I always kind of joke around, say they were looking for somebody dumb enough and cheap enough to take the territory and, uh, because Ed and Joey knew me well, they knew that I fit that description perfectly. And uh, oh, okay. they put me up for an interview uh, with Wes. And um, and I, I guess because I, I fit that bill, they, they hired me. Um, so that was a few months after my wife and I had gotten married. And um, we had moved to Nashville, Tennessee for a short period. Uh, but I drove down from Nashville to Kennesaw and interviewed with Wes and uh, he offered me the job, and within a couple of weeks, we had moved to Macon um, and spent five years there. Um, I'd, I'd joke around and say, when I took the job, I, I didn't know the difference between 
a radiator cap and a gas cap hardly, but um, I learned a ton about our business down there. And um, after five years of, of taking care of that territory, opportunity opened up for me to move, my family and I to move back to Athens, um, where I grew up. And I've been living here again ever since. Uh, first as a uh, the territory manager for the Athens area, and then a couple years of doing that. Um, after one of our sales managers in, in Georgia moved on, uh, kind of took on his role, adopted his role as the sales manager in Georgia and have been enjoying doing that for, uh, I guess almost three years now. So, Man. So you, you, uh, you worked in your dad's garage, but I guess you weren't, you weren't really working on cars and stuff. Were you working more on the front end? No, my specialty was sweeping floors and driving customers to where they needed to go. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tried to pay attention and, and learn from the guys in the shop, you know, um, but, but I didn't do too much uh, wrench turning. Um, I was more customer service. I, I would work between uh, classes and stuff. Um, so not like I was there all day long most of the time um i was i was working there during school so so you started off in south georgia which is i'm guessing is i mean is that a pretty rural territory yeah i lived in macon which is right in the middle of the state um and macon's a a decent sized city you know it's got one of every type of dealership um and it's close to warner robbins which has a big air force base that has another of every dealership, you know. Um, but once you once you get out of that area, yeah, there's a lot of driving. Um, it's probably 160 miles to the state line, uh, to, to the Georgia-Florida border. And uh, once you leave Macon, or once you leave Warner Robins, it's um, probably 80 miles. 80 miles to the next decent sized town, which is Tifton. And then there's, you know, Valdosta's below that. And uh, I would say the majority, I would guess 50% or more of the car count in middle and South Georgia um, is in Macon, Warner Robins area uh, with Savannah being the exception that that's a, a big city, but that was not part of my territory. Um, so at one point I was covering from Macon to the Southeast corner of Georgia, which is sound called Kingsland or St. Mary's and the Southwest corner of Georgia, uh, which is a little town called Bainbridge. So there was a lot of driving during those days. I gotcha. And, uh, so you, you, you said the territory, it was kind of in disrepair at the point at which you got it. Yeah. It had just been neglected. Um, the salespeople that had been there before me had had proven themselves to not be trustworthy. They, they didn't show up uh, or do the things that they said that they would do, which was a blessing kind of for me in a way. One, it gave me the opportunity to have a job, uh, but two, it set the, set the bar, uh, the expectations low for me coming into the job, which was nice because I really didn't know much about the job. Um, and what I quickly learned was that, as BG salesmen, we have a uh, 
we have a leg up on everybody else because we have a product that by and large people want to buy. Uh, sometimes the trick is just giving them the opportunity to buy it. Right. So, um, there were a bunch of shops in South Georgia that, that would have loved to have been buying BG products for years leading up to me, but they couldn't get the service. So when I showed up and was consistent and, and willing to, um, do the things that I told them I would do, uh, which oftentimes wasn't much more than being back in two weeks, you know, um, it was easy to, to gain their trust back and, and give them the products that, that they'd been wanting to buy. Um, and then, you know, that gave me the opportunity to learn to do the job well uh, after after gaining some customers back. But it is funny how confidence like, in the brand. I'm kind of going through that right now. You know, I'm I'm working a uh, a territory that you know there's a lot of shops that have been neglected and stuff, and it's 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 funny for for a guy. You know, if you're if you're the type of guy that has gotten chewed up and spit out on cold calls, you know, left and right for, for years. And then you walk into a shop that's like, oh man, yeah, we're so glad you're here. Like we've been wanting to buy stuff. We just can't get a hold of anybody or so-and-so just never stopped by. We haven't seen him in six months. It's, it's like baffling. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's two sides to every story. A lot of times. For sure. A guy's been showing up and they've, the shop has been ignoring them or, you know, not engaging with them or whatever. And it's easy to get frustrated, but, um, but it's nice when it pays off. Um, Definitely. So, um, you know, we've been talking a little bit leading up to all this and, uh, you're, you're kind of in a unique situation right now because, you your sales manager for Georgia, but then you also still have a couple of key accounts that you manage, right? That's correct. Yeah, um, um, I, I spend most of my time working with my coworkers, the the territory managers, um, the sales staff in Georgia, and I have a, a counterpart. His name's Marty Haywood. Marty Haywood. He um, he works with the salespeople in Alabama. Um, and he and I will help each other on special, help each other out on special projects, um, you know, as those needs arise, but I'm really lucky to, to be able to stay engaged as a salesperson as well. I have three accounts in the Atlanta area, um, that are, that I just have close relationships with, um, that they keep me sharp as a salesperson, um, and it's it's can be tough to manage my time to give them the time and the attention that they deserve while still juggling uh, the other aspects of my job and giving our salespeople the support that they deserve as well. Um, but it's a fun balance and it's challenging. Um, but I, I really like the setup that that we have. I think that, yeah, there's there's something to that that I don't think gets the you know, we don't put enough emphasis on it, but it's like, it's that field perspective. It's staying connected to the traditional role of a BG salesman, you know, that, you know, when you're, when a shop depends on you for, you know, for inventory, for training, they depend on you to come in and pitch them, 
you know, new ideas to look at their program and find the holes and try to help them build something better out of it. I think it's really easy to overlook that, especially, you know, as a, as a sales manager or something like that, or maybe as a distributorship owner, but there's a lot of value in just having a, a real tangible connection to that type of a role, you know, staying in the trenches even once you've moved to a point where you're more of a support guy. Yeah. It's a good reminder to me. It, being a, a territory manager and account manager is stressful. You know, um, your income, your livelihood depends on, on those customers buying from you, supporting you. Um, and that, and that can be stressful. So yeah. It's a nice reminder to me what, my guys go through as well, you know, the, the weight of those visits into the shops and the importance of, of being a, a good business partner to our, to our accounts. Um, yeah, it's, I'm glad that I'm stay connected that way. So that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Cause you know, I, I kind of heard a little bit about one of your accounts. I know you have a, a, a really large Toyota store, right? Yeah. Atlanta Toyota is, uh, it's probably the largest, I would guess the largest Toyota dealer in Georgia. Um, they're in, in Duluth, which is just a little bit outside the city of Atlanta. And, uh, they're just, they're wonderful folks, man. Um, really, really great leadership within the store. They're Penske automotive, uh, group dealership. Okay. Uh, and I think probably, strong leadership is is pretty constant in those Penske stores, I would imagine. Um, from the well, top down. I think, you know, as at one point, you know, when I was a sales rep and I was covering, you know, a mostly rural, but you know, the cities that I had were were small and sort of uh, you know, not in their best condition at the moment. I think it sometimes it was easy to look at the dealerships that other reps had, you know, these these big large dealerships and think like, oh man, you know, if only I had stuff like that, you know, it would I'd be made in the shade or whatever. You know, what big dealerships they're a big responsibility and they take a lot to get things moving. Um can you tell me, talk a little bit about like the, the challenges of, of getting a, a big ship like that to turn and, and what's involved in the kind of time commitment it takes to do that? Um, you know, obviously it's helpful if you have strong leadership and participation from the, uh, from the service director, the parts director, uh, the, you know, the important figures, but I guess what, the way I would choose to respond to that is a huge dealership in comparison to a small dealership. I'm always amazed and reminded how much an impact a single service advisor can have, you know? So like Atlanta Toyota has 15 service advisors um, and, you know, another store might have three or four service advisors, but if, those three or four service advisors at the small dealership are engaged. If you've done a good job training them, done a good job motivating them, getting them excited to sell BG, 
that small dealership can do just as much as, as the large dealership, you know, uh, three or four or, or one service advisor can have a huge impact on a BG salesperson's personal income, right? So yeah, it's a bonus if you have 15 of them, but you got to work hard to get all 15 of them engaged and performing. And, you know, the job's never done because of turnover and, you know, the account, that specific account might have six or seven advisors that are engaged and they do really well because they have six or seven advisors that are engaged, but they could do a whole lot better if I stay focused and, um, and do my job to um, make the remaining service advisors job fun and, and convenient, right. To sell our products. Um, so, you know, I would say the best way to get a single service advisor to sell a lot of BG is, I just said it a moment ago, but to make his job fun and convenient. Um, and the way do that is to um, make sure something as simple as make sure his op codes and the, and the computer set up well so that he can know when to sell a certain service and press one button in the computer and it gets sold rather than him having to do math and calculations each time trying to figure out how much it's going to be sold for this time um you know we have a sheet that we call an rpm sheet and basically it's just how we calculate the profits and labor and parts on um on each bg product and i like to have make sure that every service advisor has a copy of that so that uh, so that's always on the front of their mind right um and when a new guy comes in make sure that He's trained on all those services um, and, you know, is, knows where to go to make his commission check, not only from the dealership, but his, his check from Primaco from BG as well. And with his uh, performance bonus or his incentive check. Um, and it's just staying focused and uh, communicating with, with the sales staff uh, in, inside the dealership. Not only every two weeks, but as often as you can reach out to them by phone or email or whatever, just to remind them that uh, that you need them to perform for you today, you know. And it's great when you have a ton of service advisors, but you can make a good living uh, with just a few service advisors, you know. I think I think most of us probably do in a territory, you know, it's yeah, you're you're right. It's and, and I think think there's there's really no other way to do this job than one service advisor making an impact one service advisor at a time you know you yeah, never turn an entire store at once it's all about getting one guy to do his absolute best today you know as opposed to what he did yesterday sure because the guy or gal next to him is going to notice uh you know the the money that that his or her co-workers making or the uh, CSI scores that they're that they're getting by giving good service, or um, you know, and they're going to ask me how how are you doing that? And suddenly, they're helping you do your job by training their coworkers for you. You know, it's almost kind of like uh, it's like a dog sled. Like one dog pulling a little bit harder kind of tugs the others along with him. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's a good analogy. I. I have a lot of good analogies. That's one of my strengths. <laughs> so, um, 
That was okay. So you said something really interesting there. I think it's easy for a guy. Uh, it's easy to look at, at the job of a BG salesman and say, okay, how are we going to turn this account around? How are we going to get this new account started? What's going to make the difference in this store? Oh, it's training. It's training. It's training. It's training. And training's important and we can never stop training, right? I'm sure that's a big part of what you do, but you said, you know, making their job fun and convenient, which is yeah. as simple as op codes. It's having a cheat sheet in front of them that tells them what op code correlates to which service, telling them which price, you know, what pricing is for all these different services. That's that's a yeah. huge part of this, isn't it? I mean, if it's you can have all the training in the world, but if if it's a if you don't know what to enter into the computer, how long are you going to screw with that before you're like I don't care. I'm not going through this again. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm just dude. not going to sell any more of these. I wasted so much money as a young uh, BG salesperson printing menus. And I'd come up with these awesome menus with awesome packages. And we'd put a price on it that we, uh, you know, thought was digestible for the, for the vehicle owner. And then I'd spend four or 500 bucks printing the menus, drop them off. And a few months later, they'd be in the trash can because I was expecting the service advisor to sell a menu. And every time they said, hey, you want to buy this 60K, they'd have to start calculating and figure out, OK, the parts are going to be this much. The labor, I'm going to have to discount the labor this much. How many hours are in this package again? And they were worthless because they were there was so much thinking involved. So one of our coworkers, his name's Aaron Baker. Uh, and something that he's really opened my eyes to is the power of making menus simple. Right. So what we've started doing is in addition to all the standalone op codes for, you know, fuel service, transmission service, MOA, whatever we've built menu packages. Um, and the way we, Calculate. We we start with the parts department. We get their prices first, and we typically base the packages on the more expensive oil change, right? So you know, some oil change is going to be five, some six, some eight quarts of oil. We say, let's just take the worst case scenario and get how much money do you have in oil and filter on the eight quart synthetic oil change, whatever. And then we add our parts in, uh, you know, the PG parts, whatever. And th these menu packages are packed with what we at Primaco called Power 5 items, MOA, ethanol treatment, EPR, 44K, that type of thing. Um, but then we back into the retail price of the packages based on what the management wants their effective labor rate to be, right? So, you know, you want an $80 effective labor rate. Okay, well, then this package is going to have to be 299 bucks or whatever. Most folks are going to say, or a lot of folks are going to say, no, I want 100 bucks ELR. Cool. So, you know, your package is going to have to cost 350 bucks, um, whatever. So then we figure out how much labor dollars they can have and how much labor time and then build a single op code for the 60K service to where the advisor doesn't have to think anymore. They just type 60K and it sells, right? But what's cool about it on the actual menu that we print, we always underneath the price on the service, we put the op code. Uh, slash, and then a number, you know, 12, whatever. 
and that slash number, the number is the dollar amount of the performance incentive, uh, the performance bonus that the advisor gets for selling that opcode. So to make it convenient and fun, the convenience is, okay, it's one button to press and I know what button that is, what opcode to use because it's printed right here. So it's convenient. But the fun part is, oh, awesome. I get $12 when I sell this. I'm going to ask the customer to buy this, right? This And suddenly it's fun to sell them because not only are we getting a whole lot more in our check from the store, our paycheck uh, for selling a menu package rather than another oil change. But dang, the BG guy's going to give me 12 bucks when he comes around because because I sold this menu package. Um, so it's been a lot of fun over the last year or two putting packages and menus in like that. And um, and I've wasted a whole lot less money in printing uh, than I did early on. Uh, oh my God, that makes, that makes so that much process. sense. Like yeah. I'm literally sitting here thinking about the menus we have in, in the process of making right now and thinking like, okay, how, do, how are we going to change those to make that reflect, you know, those exactly what you're saying. And that, that's, ah, that's such good advice. And this is the and kind of I'll stuff you, that, like nobody tells you, you know, like nobody comes to you and says, this is how you need to build a menu. You need to think about this, this, and this, you know, it, it's never laid out that way in training. So it's all just stuff that you have to learn on the fly from someone who's done it successfully, you know? Yeah, and my advice would be when before you present that menu to the decision maker in the store, have it built the way you want it, right? Make sure you're getting whatever's important to you. Uh, to me, it's MOA and ethanol. Uh, make sure I'm getting those things in the menu where I want them. The other good reason to put those things in the menu is when I sell them, they're going to have performance bonus into them, built into them, right? So, you know... Typically, I spiff a dollar on a can of MOA and three dollars on an ethanol treatment. That adds four dollars of incentive to each package, right? So, but it's also only adding about forty dollars of retail price. So that gives the service advisor more motivation to sell the package. The higher the incentive is, I can add four dollars into a menu package by only adding forty dollars to the retail price. Um, and then, you know, very often we end up selling. A 115, a 2912, uh, a bottle of washer solvent, 9822, uh, along with an oil change and rotation for a hundred bucks. That's really easy for an advisor to sell, especially when they realize they're getting paid four bucks to do it, you know, uh, four bucks on top of their paycheck. Um, so. so, okay. So this brings us to a good point here because you know, menu content, right? That's a, that's a, a hotly debated subject. And I think, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of menus from different parts of the country and some guys, they build really heavy packages. Some guys build really light packages. I mean, you talked about like the power five stuff, as you guys call them, like, which is a lot of poor products, ethanol, MOA, you know, EPR, 44K, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, for, for the guy that's looking at it and goes, well, you know, why wouldn't I build a transmission service into the 30 K, you know, protection plan, blah, 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 blah. Like, I think we should be doing a trans service. Why, 
what is it that you're looking for when you're putting these packages together? You know, I would say that there needs to be um, some respect paid to the manufacturer and what what the vehicle owner is going to see in their owner's manual. Um, I say some because um, we all know that those are not realistic automotive needs, you know, probably most of the time, right? But truth is, most owner manual, owner's manuals these days are going to say, you know, don't service your transmission oil until 90,000 miles. So it's going to be tough for me to convince the service advisor who has to face the customer to ask for that extra two to $300 every 30,000 miles. Um, so, you know, instead I would choose to focus on, you know, putting in a EPR service of 6577 every 15 and a fuel service every 20 or 30,000 miles, depending on you know, the manufacturer or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I, I've heard some people say that, you know, let's try to keep a, a 30K or a 60K to a dollar amount around um, that of a car payment, right? So, you know, 500 bucks or whatever, if, if the customer's probably paying 500 bucks a month on their car note, let's keep that big package around around 500 bucks. But, and, and you know, that number's somewhat arbitrary. Um, but instead, I would say what's more important is to get buy-in from the service advisor to, you know, I don't really care how much the package costs as long as the service advisor is comfortable and confident asking the vehicle owner to pay that dollar amount, right? Um, if you're scared to sell a $200 package, but you're confident in selling a 500 package, $500 package, you're going to be able to sell the $500 package and you're going to strike out on the $200 package. Uh, my philosophy is always the, the customer, the vehicle owner isn't choosing to shop at that store, or that dealership um, because they think it's going to be the cheapest. They're not choosing to shop there uh, because it's the most convenient. You know, they passed 10 places on the way that they could have stopped. Typically they're choosing to shop take their vehicle wherever they're taking it uh, because in their mind, that store is the expert on their vehicle, right? So I always tell service advisors that that gives them a lot of authority because whether they feel like the expert or not, it doesn't matter. The perception of the customer is that that service advisor and that technician are the experts on their vehicle, right? So if we can get them a menu package, uh, that they are confident in, then they can act like the expert expert and, and ask the vehicle owner to buy it. Um, and I think a lot of times the vehicle owner will say yes, if not most of the time. So when you're putting the packages together, you get a lot of, uh, do you schedule like a meeting with all of the advisors or you just kind of consult with them individually to see what they think would be best placed where? Yeah, I'm going to give them um, what I think it should be, right? Uh, but I'm going to get them to give me any feedback, and and we'll make a, you know make changes to it to to get it to a point that they are confident in. Um, but a lot of times, you show them what you think it should be, and they trust you as well, you know. 
But if you can get their buy-in on the front end, then that takes an excuse factor out on the back end. Hey, man, why aren't you selling this? You you said you were good with it. Did I misunderstand you? Do we need to make some edits? Uh, or are you just forgetting to show it, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I think it's important for to communicate, to get the content that they want, but also just take away the excuse factor um, if you do that on the front end. So let's say, all right, you're, you're working with this shop. You, uh, you got their feedback on the menus. You got the packages put together. You've got op codes in the menu or in the DMS. You know, everything is in place and you're walking into the store with a box of brand new printed menus. Okay. What's, what's next for you? What's, what's a training regiment look like for those menus? Before we get into the training regimen, let me say uh, one practice that we've started doing is when we show up to launch that menu, we don't show up with a thousand menus. We print a handful of menus, you know, enough for each advisor, and we laminate those menus so that they can keep them on the desk. Um, The reason we do that is if we need to make any changes, in the first two or three weeks, we're 20 bucks in at that point. We're not 300 bucks in, right? So do them on just single reusable laminates and um, and work out the kinks, right? Um, from there, we uh, see, if, see if those menus are going to work, make changes if we need to. Um, but we always like to spend you know, a a day or two working with the advisors there on the lane, um, making sure that they're not just sticking the menu in their desk. Right. Um, And we always like to, when we're doing that training, we kind of like to walk the advisors kind of through the uh, menu presentation sales process. That guy, Aaron, that I mentioned earlier kind of helped develop a, a really good word track where we, tell the advisors, Hey man, the first thing you need to do after you've done your meet and greet, you've done your walk around, you get their mileage and you present the menu based on, um, based on the mileage of that vehicle. Right. And, you know, the customer's going to give you buying cues. They're either going to say, you know, yes, no, I wasn't expecting to spend 500 bucks today. And you'll kind of know where to go from there. You'll either say, you know, how much will you, planning on budgeting for maintenance today and, and you'll know what to take out of the menu. Um, or, you know, maybe they'll say, well, Hey, I just, I just want my oil changed. Hey, you know what, Mr. Customer, that's no problem, no problem at all. I'm going to flip this menu over and show you where we have three different oil service options. Now, guess what about on that menu, the oil service options, they all are going to include BG, right? Right. Um, so we'll come up with fun names for the for the oil services, but typically the bottom one uh, will always just call you know, your basic oil service. It either will or won't include a tire rotation, depending on what the store wants to do. Um, but almost always, it's going to include an MOA. So you know, it's not truly just a lube oil filter. It's a it's an oil service that. Um, benefits everybody the store makes more money the vehicle owner makes more money or excuse me the 
vehicle owner gets the benefit of MOA in their engine. The service advisor makes more money and some incentive. And we make money as well. Um, but rather than just when they say no to the 60K, putting the menu away, uh, we sell downhill and low pressure, let them choose which oil service they want, you know? And a lot of times we end up getting some power five items out of it. Um, and then we always tell, we coach the advisors to, um, you know, give the benefits of, of each oil package. Typically the middle one includes a MOA and ethanol and a washer solvent. And we, you know, one of the lines we use is, Hey, this package right here is, is by far the best value. Um, and then once they pick their oil change, we finish the conversation by telling them, hey, send in your ticket back. Your certified technician is going to do a multipoint, and I'll let you know if there's any any maintenance or safety concerns that we need. And, uh, and typically, if the menu is built well, you might find um, the items that were in their mileage uh, menu on the inspection as well. So That's, that's the goal, right? Yeah, I think. It's kind of interesting to think about. It's, you know, customer objection. They do get those people who are going to object. It's almost like no matter what they show them, they're going to throw an objection their way. I just want an oil change. And I feel like that objection a lot of times is less about like, I know exactly what I want and more about like, I want to walk away from this situation feeling like I won. Like I set the terms that that you had to abide by, you know? Mm-hmm. So just proposing a, a, you know, a backup plan for those customers that, that still includes some of the things that we want to try to get into. Their vehicle. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that we still, that we still win when, when they, you know, choose the, the least option. We're, st- we're still benefiting from it. We got a bunch of menus from uh, Cravato from the guys out there and they build theirs in a very specific way. You know, they have like three different packages on the inside panel and then they have a three tier just LOF and an additive package, you know, on the on one of the back panels. And it's like the exact same uh, premise that you just just talked about. It makes a lot of sense. So. Working with an advisor, you know, kind of following up on what you said about, you know, spending some time on the drive with them. I think this is the part that gets intimidating for a lot of guys, a lot of BG salesmen in the field. I know it has been for me. You know, I was never a service advisor. Um, Sometimes it feels uncomfortable to get to get in there and stand next to them at the desk while they're trying to work with customers. Do you do you actually talk with customers? Do you present the menu for the guys some of the time so that they learn by example? Like what does working on the drive actually look like for you? Yeah, I, I try not to speak to customers. I don't really feel like it's my, my role, you know, I'm a guest in, in their place of business. Um, and, um, you know, if I start talking to customers, suddenly I'm, you know, responsible for the, the survey that the customer is going to send in or whatever. Uh, there's times where an advisor will ask me to step in and I'm, I'm happy to, um, you know, if, if I'm invited to, um, but a lot of working with the, with the service advisor is just encouraging them 
to get outside of their comfort zone. You know, I think a lot of the time, probably the biggest reason that we don't grow as individuals is we stay stuck in our own comfort zones. As soon as you step outside of those, your your comfort zone grows, right? Um, but it's a whole lot easier, I said earlier, to just put the menu back in your desk and keep on taking orders, right? Um, so a lot of work in the lane is just being there to answer questions as they arise. Um, you know, a lot of the training, a lot of the important training happens in the meeting room, in the training room before you're on the drive. Right. Um, but being present to, to encourage them to, to present the menu or to make sure they're getting a good, um, multi-point inspection. Or if you're working with the techs, making sure they're filling out their inspections well, or making good, uh, recommendations, and just being there, being present, um, letting them know that you're in the trenches with them, um, that, um, and not letting them off easy, right? Making sure that that they're doing not only what you want them to do, but what's expected of them as as service salespeople, right? So um, it's really, it's, and, and I it's think that the service, I think the management, yeah, it's about accountability, and I think the management. You know, the service manager, whoever typically appreciates that, you know, if, if they trust you to be another set of eyes on their service drive, they're busy. They got a bunch of stuff going on um, and they can't be inspecting all day. Um, so if they know that you're there doing that for them, then suddenly that's helps you to be more irreplaceable in that account, you know. For sure. Um, and it's fun now, too. It's fun seeing that pay off and seeing the guys or gals on the service drive grow as individuals and as professionals. Right. It, and, you know, helping them get a couple of wins under their belt seems to be a big factor in getting whatever initiative you're trying to push in that store to actually start rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of an unrelated question, but, you know, not totally. Um, I'm thinking of one store in particular in my territory that I know is, you know, a common situation across, you know, all guys' territories. But, you know, this particular store, like good relationships, you know, we know the advisors really well, know the manager really well. Um, We've done training, right? We've... We've done all sorts of training. We've done product demos. We've done classroom training. We've done rim training, everything you can think of. Uh, They have menus and stuff is just not moving. You know, stuff, we just have never really found our stride in this shop and management keeps paying lip service to the point, you know, to the idea that we need to sell and they're more than happy to let you waste your time in there. What do, what do you do with a store like that? Like where, what it, what are some of the things that you, you know, you might throw it at the wall in a place where you feel like you've done your due diligence, but things are just not taken off. Man, I love uh, running contests for accounts, you know, giving away prizes, um, given increased um, performance bonuses, um, you know, just, trying to to 
have fun, fun with the guys. And I've run a lot of unsuccessful contests in my day. Right. Uh, but the ones that have been successful are the ones that have had uh, the most constant communication um, with, with the normally the service advisors. Um, so, you know, I can think of one time in particular that I ran a big EPR contest because, you know, I created the op code. I'd done the education. We'd done uh, some online training um, and it just, I couldn't get them to sell EPR. But once I figured out that I was going to run this contest and I can't even remember what the prize was. Um, you know, I think I did first, second, third place prizes or something um, or, you know, increased incentive pay, whatever it was. I, it, it, the prize wasn't that great, but it was so much fun because I got everybody's email and I sent out daily updates uh, to all the advisors and their bosses. Right. Um, and so it was a lot of work. I had to I have VMA in that account. I was able to log in and, and get the sales data from the previous day each day. Um, but every single day for that month, I, um, I would email out a scorecard with everybody's EPR sales on it, their total sales, their penetration, whatever. And we, we ended up selling like, you know, we went from selling 25 EPR services a month to six, five, seven, sevens to, I mean, I think we sold 500 EP six, five, seven, sevens that month. And it was, it was a big account. Um, like 500. But, but yeah, we did 20, we did 20 times as much of that product. And it wasn't the prize that was motivating the salespeople. It was the camaraderie of not wanting their, of their stats being shown to everybody else. Right. And them them not wanting to be, um, you know, at the bottom of the list, whatever. Um, and it wouldn't, I know it wouldn't have been as successful if I'd have only updated them once a week, or if I'd have updated them only when I was in the store every two weeks, or, you know, if I'd have launched the contest and then just told them at the end who won, it, it wouldn't have been successful. Um, so, you know, maybe when you're banging your head against the wall, what am I going to do? How am I going to get these guys to sell? You know, maybe consider running a contest, but, but don't waste your time if you're not going to stay engaged with that sales staff. And, uh, and I learned that from the way um, Wes Seabaugh and our accounting staff at Primaco keep us engaged. You know, they send out weekly updates with our, where we're tracking on quota and how we compare to everybody else in the company sales wise. And, um, and you don't want to be at the bottom of that list. Right. Um, so, um, you know, maybe something like that. That is funny. Uh, you know, it's, it's less about the size of the prize and more about the pressure you know, that you put and the emphasis that you put on it. Right. And, uh, it, it is funny how often like, uh, we as BG guys will complain about the fact that advisors aren't motivated and that we can't, you know, they don't seem to, to stay focused. Like once we leave, as soon as I walk out the door, you know, they're on to the next thing. They've forgotten that I was there, but, you know, a lot of us, when we hear that kind of advice, we'd look at that and go, oh man, every day you want me to update them every day. Like that yeah. sounds like 
pain. And it's, it's just a different translation of the same message, right? It's how bad do you want it? How bad do you want this to succeed? Well, and yeah, and what are you going to, what price are you going to pay to create good habits at that account? You know, um, they haven't sold 500 EPRs every month since then, but they sell, you know, 300 a month now, um, rather than the 25 that they were doing beforehand. Um, so, well, you just look at the raw, like let's use round numbers and say 35 times 500. That's $17,500 in sales. That's yeah. an insane amount of sales. Sure. Of the, of the good stuff too, MOA and 44K and 109. Hey, but you know, Casey, I remembered a detail about how I structured that particular contest. Um, okay. And I think this is something that Mark Baker, who's uh, one of our salespeople in Memphis, taught me, um, was that I made it to where everybody on the sales staff could win. It wasn't first, second, third place prizes. It was if you get to a certain penetration rate, um, you'll win. And and I remember the prize was Apple AirPods. So they were, it was a nice prize that, that guys would, or gals would want to win. Um, but they knew that, A, they knew that that number one advisor would sell more than them, right? So what's the point of trying if advisor number one's just going to beat me, right? I could have the best month of my life, he's still going to beat me. Uh, so that bottom guy is not motivated to improve his game, right? Um, but if I think, you know, maybe the number was if you get to 30% penetration on EPR or 20% or whatever it was, you would win a pair of Apple AirPods. So it made it attainable for everybody to win um, and stay engaged for that reason, not, not get discouraged because they wouldn't be the number one person. They just had to be um good enough and good enough was an exceptional number you know it was improvement for almost everybody um but everybody stayed engaged that way and that's awesome i i i think that uh there's definitely something to be said for that idea that like you know if you want to raise the whole harbor you know structure it so that everyone if they strive for the prize could win i i I like that. And I noticed that like, uh, you know, my buddy Caleb in Michigan, you know, he structured a lot of contests that way too. You know, there might be a top prize, but everybody has the ability to take something away from it. How, how big of a deal do you think it is to have, you know, what's, what does Apple AirPods cost? Are they 250 bucks or something like that? Yeah. They were less than 200 bucks, whatever. Okay. So not really that expensive of a prize. Do you find that when you're trying to run a contest, is it more beneficial to put a prize out there that the guys can fixate on rather than just cash? I prefer prizes uh, because whether it's a big screen TV or Apple AirPods or Yeti cooler, every time they see that item, I want them to think about me, right? And I want them to think about selling BG every time they reach into that cooler, answer a call, and they're on their AirPods or you know whatever the item might be. Um, 
you give them cash, if they earn cash, they're just going to spend it on bills. And yeah, that's helpful. That's great. But they're not going to think about you when they flip their light switch on next month because their electricity bill is paid, right? Um, I like to give prizes that everybody wants, but everybody's hesitant to buy for themselves because you feel like you're wasting money when you spend 300 bucks on a cooler or whatever, right? Um, yeah, you'd feel guilty going out and buying Apple AirPods instead of spending 40 bucks on Amazon once. But when you have the ability to win it, all right, that's a prize worth pushing for. Sure. And then you think about selling BG every time you use them, right? Ah, that's a great point. Man, I got so many ideas churning now. <laughs> I got some stores I'm trying to get some stuff going in and I'm thinking, man, maybe it's time for an AirPod contest. Yeah, I, you know, you just got to make sure everybody everybody wins with your contest. And what I mean by that is it's got to benefit the dealership, right? You're not going to get support. And truthfully, you're not going to be a good partner if it doesn't benefit the dealership, right? If you wanted to you know, sell a bunch of washer solvent, whatever. They could just put that on every ticket and the dealership wouldn't make any money doing that, right? So obviously that's an extreme example, um, but everybody's got to win. You know, with the EPR, they get extra labor uh, when they sell that. They get extra parts money when they sell that, right? So the dealership's winning. Uh, the service advisor's winning because it adds um, – labor dollars to their ticket the technicians winning because it adds two tenths of time uh to the ticket when they sell it the vehicle owner is winning because their car is running like it hasn't since it was new after the service right um and you're winning because with the commission you make selling the kit you're outrunning the prizes that you're buying and you're creating good habits on the service drive that are going to continue to pay you long term um so you just swim it you in a lose, You lose credibility when. Or go ahead. <laughs> it, was, it was nothing. I, I that that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, sometimes you look at programs that are that are making the uh, you know BG a lot of money in a store, and you have to kind of scratch your head and go, okay, this is great and all, but is this short lived? Because I don't see how this benefits the customer. Or I don't see how the dealership wins. This is just a particular service manager that, you know, is willing to do something good for us. Like making sure that your program, however it's laid out, is good for everyone involved is a is a big deal. Yeah, I never want to take advantage of the trust that I've gained in my partnership, um, you know. So you always got to keep those those um, good intentions or whatever. Um, now you've, uh, now that you're working in a, in a little bit different role and, uh, you know, you're working with other reps within, you know, Primaco, I'm sure you've seen a couple come and go since you started in that position, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm kind of in, you know, a similar position right now where we've had some changes, you know, at Kansas BG. And I'm always struck by like the things that we find in accounts and, you know, the, the, the little differences that either make or break a sales rep. 
when it in in the BG world. You know, what are what are the things that you think are typically the 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 points at which you know a BG rep can like what are what are some of the little things that make someone fall apart at this job as opposed to turning around and being really successful? Someone who's talented that by all means should have succeeded at this, but for some reason just didn't. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of answers to that question. Um, one of the first ones that comes to mind, though, is if if I wasn't organized, this job would eat me alive. Um, you know, if if I didn't know uh, what I was doing for the next week, two weeks, month, um, and wasn't able to be proactive in maintaining my schedule and giving my clients the service that they deserve. If I was instead having to be reactive uh, throughout the month, it would, uh, it'd be tough to to succeed at a high level and to to give the service that, that I want to give. I've seen a lot of guys that have um, great personalities, a lot of ability, a lot of fixed ops knowledge, that don't have the discipline to stay organized and to keep their schedule. And a lot of times those guys end up failing. Um, Job eats them alive. They start cutting corners. They start um, not following through with what they said they're going to do and and making bad decisions. Um, And and they don't last um, despite all the, all the abilities that, that, um, they were born with that God's given them. Um, they let can let the job, uh, you know, dominate them rather than keeping their arms a- around it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I would say that the most successful guys are the guys that that plan everything out and are willing to get up early and and get after it. A, a lot of times, this job affords us. Um, you know, benefits of um, having a flexible schedule. Um, but if you're not willing to um, to determine that schedule, it'll it'll uh, it'll be tough um, to yeah, you know, to be successful long term. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Uh, something that I had a lot of trouble with when, you know, when I was running the territory, there's nothing worse than driving, you know, an hour and a half from the warehouse and realizing like, Oh my God, I forgot I was going here today. And they take this special kit. Now I don't have it. I'm going to have to go back here later in the week. Like this is three and a half hours out of my week that I'm going to spend you know, to sell this one case of product when I could be elsewhere training or doing something else or cold calling or you name. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I I've always kept copies of invoices for way longer than I need to. Um, so that I can reference back on those and say, yeah, before I leave uh, the warehouse this morning, I need to make sure I have the right things on my van. Cause you're right. Especially when you have a rural territory, like, like I had, uh, back in the day, it's not a fun feeling <laughs> to realize that you're three and a half hours of your limited week. You can't create more time, right? 
three and a half hours wasted behind the wheel. Um, so, um, I've hate to say it, but I've experienced that feeling before. <laughs> right. Well, I really appreciate you, uh, spending some time with me, Caleb. I, I think that's a lot of great advice there. Um, you know, making the job for the service advisor easy and making it convenient and fun. Uh, looking at ways to motivate those guys that are outside of the box that aren't just throwing money at them. You know, thinking about the way you structure your menus and, of course, being organized in the way that you approach your route, you know, which is really what it comes down to. If you're running a route, you know, you got to be organized uh, to do it effectively. So, I think those are all great advice items for, for, for new guys, for veteran guys. I mean, I think we all need to remember those things regardless of our tenure with the company. So appreciate the, uh, the sound advice, man. And man, again, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah. Casey, thanks for, uh, letting me be your guest. All right, man. Have a good night. Likewise. Talk to you soon. <laughs>